The Writer's Store featured a great Q&A with documentarian Peter Hansen, I believe, he did um, Tales from the Script. Mm -hmm. And one of his points in the Q&A was, don't underestimate the value of cynicism when it comes to building your career. So in keeping with that for your screenwriting career, how do you balance the two so that you're not too overconfident and also too pessimistic so that you, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy? Uh, that's a great question. And actually, uh, I'm gonna steal part of my answer from someone, uh, I can't remember who told me this, but in my opinion, and what they had to say is that screenwriting um, is quite oftentimes uh, very challenging and very difficult uh, on a daily basis. So you have these waves of these peaks of megalomania where you write 20 pages in a day and you think you're an incredible writer and you think you're unstoppable. Uh, and then you have these other days where, or weeks where you don't write a word or you don't write a page or you don't get anything done and you really uh, reach these valleys of self-loathing. So I don't feel like there's really an in-between. There's no real middle ground. I think you are uh, mainly in the trenches. Most of the time you are dealing with self-doubt, in my opinion, as a writer, um, and dealing with the hardships that come along with trying to create, uh, whether it's a, a feature film or a novel or a television pilot or project. Um, so I think, sure, maybe some writers out there are optimistic about their ideas and, and what the story that they want to tell, but I think the overall psychology and mentality of a writer, from my opinion, uh, and from my experience, is, is that of someone who is constantly dealing with challenges on a daily basis. And so for me, I don't know that I would say I'm optimistic. I'm very excited about what I'm writing most of the time. Um, but that's on the surface of things. I think when you dig deeper, um, you know, we are self-loathing individuals. You know, we have, um, we have issues with uh, self-deprecation. And, and uh, I think f for me, that's, that's usually where I'm at. So... Do you know when you're on that scale? Do you, when you're like, just wow, these ideas are flowing through me and you're just like typing away, is there like something in you that says, wow, you know, I'm, I'm up there in terms of like confidence and should I be careful or how should I utilize this? And then the same when you get to sort of the self-hating. I mean, I think I remember, uh, I could probably count on one hand the amount of times that I've had a stretch of writing where I feel like I don't know where it's coming from. Um, it's just so fantastic and I'm very excited about it and it just flows out of me. Um, you know, I think literally December of 2009 was one of those times for me. Um, you know, maybe two, three months ago when I was working on my most recent project, I had three incredible weeks of writing. Um, you know, so, so those are few and far between. I think really uh, it's those other moments where you are in the valley um, of self-loathing that are there just because it's so difficult to complete a story. I mean, if you're lucky, you're getting three pages a day on a script, you know, that you're writing. Um, at least that's how I work. So um, in trying to answer your question, I guess that... Uh, 
you know, like I said before, there is no real middle ground for me. So I, I try to just dig myself out of those trenches and write the best product that I possibly can. And, you know, I think the thing is, a lot of independent filmmakers and writers have to, especially, you know, for the new normal, have to write on spec on a daily basis. So if you write for three weeks and, and it's potentially not going to be anything that you can use, that's three weeks of your hard-earned time and, and effort and, and, you know, you have to account for finances and everything as well. So um, it can just be draining on you, you know, whereas I think that when you get into a situation where you have a first look deal with a studio or a production company or you have someone who is optioned the script and is developing it with you um, and you can start writing and be financially comfortable, I think then it's more of whether or not you can be creative on a daily basis, but at least you can put aside the fact that um, you know you have the income to be comfortable to be writing. So Now that you've been in the business a while, you've also worked at CAA, I believe, in mm -hmm. Innovative. How has that helped show you maybe that it's not so rosy, that you can't just come here and, and, and it does take time? And you talked about building a career brick by brick. It's not this overnight thing, but um, how has that helped you so that it does, you said there really is no balance, but in seeing that there is really no kind of straight ride to the top? How has that helped you stay Well, um, you know, I, I went to film school as well. I was at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, the film school there is theory and history based. So um, I had an emphasis in screenwriting and production. So I tried to get an overall education of filmmaking as a whole. Um, but it was a great foundation because I learned a lot about history and a, about the theory, uh, you know, uh, of filmmaking. So. Um, I, when I graduated and I moved to Los Angeles, sure, I thought I was going to conquer the world. I thought, you know, I wasn't going to be like everyone else. I thought I could make it to the top relatively unscathed and climb that ladder quickly. Um, but you quickly learn that that's just not the case. We all have to work incredibly hard. We have to pay our dues. We have to make our connections. Um, it's rare that you are just born into it or given that golden ticket. So um, for me, it was uh, kind of a unique situation. One of the first jobs that I had in Los Angeles was working in the lit department at Innovative Artists. And I was working under an agent, uh, Nancy Nigrosh, who was, although there are no titles, she was technically the head of the lit department. She had incredible clients. Um, I learned so much. I was doing coverage on a daily basis. I'd probably read close to 500 scripts, if not more. Um, and I learned the business of what it was to, um, you know, help represent a writer, help get a project sold, um, and uh, even just the bare bones of what it was to write a script, you know, because I was constantly, constantly reading them. So having started there, um, it got me excited about screenwriting and it made me want to pursue my own career. And I was, uh, after few years there ready to leave and pursue that and I had some friends who were over at Creative Artists Agency and uh, they convinced me to go over there uh, and work for a while and I was planning on moving over there to be on a lit desk because I preferred the lit side of, of the agency um, but I was actually asked to work for Joel Lubin who is motion picture talent um, he is incredible, an incredible agent, represents some of the best actors in town. I mean, his client list is is Zac Efron and Tom Cruise and uh, 
you know, Ashton Kutcher among others. So um, I also learned that side of the business, um, the, the talent side of it, and um, made a lot of great connections. So um, based on those uh, two different opportunities, once I left Creative Artists Agency and started my own career writing, um, I knew a little bit more about what it took to write a script and to create something that was both creative that I believed in that had an integrity to a story, but also um, that had a certain marketability in mind. So I think that I, as I told you before, sure, we have these um, peaks of megalomania and these um, valleys of self-loathing, but I think if you can prepare yourself for what the actual industry is um, and 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 prepare yourself for what you have to do to uh, to get there and, and know that there's going to be a lot of failure and rejection along the way then um, you know you can deal with a little bit more of those hardships you know because it's it's a bit of a cliche now but you know you hear it from people in all different types uh, of work within the industry that there's nothing really glamorous about the industry you know um, it's a, it's it's a business like anything else it's very difficult it's very hard and you have to put in your time and effort. So I think that um, you, uh, you can get past those days of self-loathing knowing that you're putting in time and effort to get there where you need to be. And uh, so, you know, like I said, you caught me on a good day, I guess, because uh, I have a lot of great projects that I'm excited about and, um, you know, I've had a lot of great writing as of late. Justin, on the lit side, when you were working for um, Innovative, what were some of the rules that you learned that were maybe unspoken, but that when something came across your desk that you knew that a writer was in a particular situation or just some of the protocol that maybe the rest of the world doesn't know about until you're really in that industry? Well, um, as an assistant, you take on a lot of tasks and duties. It's um, a very difficult job. and um, especially in my situation at Innovative, working for Nancy, um, as I said, she was representing some of the best clients in town, and so she was very challenging. She expected a lot out of me, um, so it was mentally and physically challenging on a daily basis. Um, but I learned so much from her in that period of time being there. So the little things that you learn are, you know, Nancy had a stack of a hundred scripts probably, you know, on her desk overflowing onto the floor and out the office door. And uh, 90 of those would end up on my desk, you know, because she only has the time to read the ones that are potentially worth reading. So um, my job as someone who is reading these scripts and doing coverage and recommending clients or recommending projects uh, or giving notes um, was to get through this stack of 90 or 100 or whatever it was and um, get her the projects that were worthwhile. So um, to make my job easier, you know, because 90% of it at the office was taking calls and scheduling meetings and, and meeting with our writers and our directors and discussing their projects, you know, these scripts were take-home scripts. So if I wanted to take my work home with me and have nothing outside of uh, working at the agency and doing coverage, then you know, I would look for an excuse potentially not to read if I didn't have to. So there's the old cliche that you've probably heard that, you know, when you're starting to read a script, if it, you can tell it's not a great story, you'll read the first 30 pages and then you'll read the last 10 pages. 
because if the story doesn't unfold to you or grab you or really get you going within even the first 10, 20, 30 pages, then it's probably not even worth reading the entire thing. And then you read the last 10 to see if anything actually happened. It blows your mind at the end. So, um, but to get back to your question, I think the thing is, what a lot of people don't know is I would receive scripts that would literally have money attached and say, here's $5. I'd love to have you read my script. And I would know that, although that's great, and I'm sure I took the $5 and spent it on something nice, um, I knew that that wasn't coming probably from a legitimate writer. So I would look at the cover page, I would look at the concept, see if it was something that we were looking for. Um, but most likely that type of project would go from my desk into the trash because there's 89 other scripts that I have to read. So it's the same thing with you know scripts that would come with a cover sheet that would have their name, their contact information, five phone numbers to get a hold of them at, the WGA registration number, the copyright number, all these things. A legitimate writer who's been around that's not green is not gonna put all those things on the cover page. They're gonna put the title, they're gonna put their name, and then they're gonna maybe put one contact. So those types of things were telltale signs. I mean, you just know who you're dealing with um, at that point. And I'm not saying it's right. I, I, I love reading. I would love to read everything that I could. There just isn't time for it. And unfortunately, you know, being at Innovative, I read all those scripts and I think, you know, we passed on probably 99% of them. Um, I, I think I recommended two clients in the time that I was there that we represented. Um, and I recommended maybe a half a dozen projects and we probably, you know, shopped a small number of those. So out of 500,000 scripts, you know, that's a very small number. It's, it's a cutthroat industry, but um, just learning those things. So for me as a writer and developing my craft, I knew a little bit more of what I had to do to get my script into the right hands, what I had to do to make sure that they knew that I wasn't uh, potentially green and that I'd been around and I knew the business and, and everything that I did to try to hopefully help me uh, get my script in the right hands and, and hopefully get it financed or optioned or made. From your time at Innovative, what were some of the things that you learned about marketing your story? What was hot, what was not, what type of you know coming of age dramas mm -hmm. sounded great but just wouldn't work in terms of studios? Well, you know, every agent um, has a roster of clients that they represent. So um, for writers, uh, you'll have your horror writer, you'll have your sci-fi writer, you'll have your dark comedy, your drama, all the genres are usually um, fulfilled in, in a roster. And if you have one, you probably have two, you probably have three, you know, different writers or directors that you can go to. So, um, you know, I think that what I learned there uh, is more about um, you can't necessarily be the jack of all trades. You kind of have to find a niche and be the master of one. So, you know, unless you're the Coen brothers or something, it's very difficult to be expansive as a writer and to touch on every single genre and to work in every single genre. So, um, you know, a prime example from Innovative is, uh, so Nancy Nigros represented a writer named Stuart Beatty. He's uh, an incredible soul. I, I like him so much, very dear, dear friend of mine. He wrote um, Collateral and Derailed, and he actually wrote one of the first drafts of Pirates of the Caribbean. So having written on that, uh, Nancy used to shop him as the pirate guy. She would literally go into a room and say, 
you guys looking for a pirate script, I got the pirate guy. I got the guy who writes pirate scripts. And, you know, eventually that film was made. Uh, you know, he created the Captain Jack, Captain Jack Sparrow character. He created that, that storyline and it took him a few years to get a credit for it because a lot of writers wrote on that project. But he was able to carve out um, quite a lucrative career having started as the pirate guy. So I think that you learn that you have to find out what your specialty is, where your strengths lie. So for me personally, I know that um, I can write drama and dark comedy. So that's where I stick for the most part. I, I'm not against writing science fiction, but I just am not well versed in it. I'd have to research a lot of it. You know, I'm not against writing uh, you know, psychological thrillers or, or other you know, genres, but I think once you know um, what you're potentially good at, that's a very good tool to hang on to. So in terms of what sells and what doesn't sell and marketability, I don't think there's an answer for it really. You know, I think we're constantly guessing and trying to figure out what sells. You know, that's what agents are doing. That's what producers are doing. That's what studio heads are doing. Um, trying to find a way to make money. It's a business at the end of the day. So um, in terms of what's marketable, I, I still think at the end of the day is if you're a good storyteller and you can tell a great story that's going to be compelling and someone reads it from start to finish and it changes them in some way, you'll probably get that film made. How many times did you see someone who was fresh off the boat out of college, let's say, blindly hands in a script, get a deal versus someone that had already been immersed in the industry and had to work their way up and had connections and was already somehow an assistant to someone, a co-whatever? How many times did you see the, the unknown? Uh, personally, never. I think those unknowns that get you know, sell their very first script for six figures or seven figures and get a first look deal at a major studio. Um, those are very rare. And if that does happen to a writer, you'll read about it in the trades. Um, it's, it's rare that that'll come across your desk and you'll be a part of that deal. I mean, it's, the percentages are so small of people that that happens to. Um, there are extremely talented writers out there that probably deserve that to happen. But it's just, it just really, unfortunately, doesn't happen. Because at the end of the day, it comes down to the connections that you have. And, um, you know, it's about who you know. So, you know, having a great story is important. And like I said before, it, I think if you have a bulletproof script that people absolutely love, the chances of you getting it done are pretty high. But the chances of you getting all those other things as an unknown coming straight out of college or out of high school or whatever it is or it being your first script are, are very rare. And so I didn't see those. I did, we did have um, one, we did take on a client who had recently graduated from um, USC and she had written a very compelling script about um, her experiences with 9-11 and uh, she had uh, just put together a, a very, very fascinating package and it turned heads and we liked it and we talked about it at the agency and she got represented there. But I don't think that that script ever got made. I think it got a representation and that was big. Um, but, you know, she wasn't dealing with seven figures and, and all those other lucrative things. Justin, you told us prior to this interview that you've contacted agency after agency to find representation 
and you haven't found the success that you were looking for in terms of that, first off, what's your overall pitch when you're contacting these people? Um, my overall pitch starts with, um, I have a film that's in post-production right now uh, entitled Killing Winston Jones. It was uh, directed by Joel David Moore, who's incredibly talented, uh, and it's starring Richard Dreyfus and Danny Glover and Danny Masterson, John Heater, Jolie Fisher, uh, Tyler Labine, Leslie Ann Brandt, a lot of fantastic wow. actors. Um, I try to name them all because we're quite close now and kind of a tight-knit family. But um, So that's in post-production. We are uh, looking to uh, be released on multiple platforms next year, uh, you know, in theaters. We'll probably do a film festival run. Um, so I have that going on at the moment. I am also in development on my most recent script, which Joel David Moore will be directing as well. Uh, we are approaching ICM, where he's represented to be packaging it. Um, we brought on um, Barbara Fiorentino, who's a casting director, a very talented casting director in town. And she is helping us start to put together a package and attach clients. So we're, uh, we just had John Heater. Um, who's most well known for Napoleon Dynamite, uh, attach himself. Uh, he's a close friend of mine, very talented actor. Um, we just spoke with another actor, Alan Tudyk, and uh, we're having discussions with Sam Rockwell, so trying to put together a full package for uh, this project, Insanity Please. Um, I actually, John Heater and I are also writing a project together. It's a, we're adapting a short um, by an Israeli writer, Edgar Carrot called Fatso. Uh, we're adapting that into a feature and we're in negotiations right now with Ram Bergman who owns the rights to the, to the short, um, who is uh, a very accomplished producer um, about writing that for him. He produced uh, Don John recently that just came out, uh, as well as Looper. Uh, one of my favorite films actually, Brick, he produced as well, um, which is a film by Ryan Johnson. Uh, who wrote and directed it. I think Ryan Johnson is one of the most talented writers that we have of the past decade. But um, so working on that as well, uh, I have a TV show actually that I'm executive producing um, with Joel Moore as well that we're packaging um, at Underground with uh, uh, Trevor Angelson and um, Evan Silverberg. And we're going to be taking to ICM as well and then taking out to networks. So we're discussing with AMC and Showtime and Netflix and HBO. Uh, and let's see. I Oh, I'm also actually negotiating the story rights, the life rights, um, for a biopic of a 70s, 60s and 70s soul singer by the name of Wayne Cochran. Um, that I'm hopefully going to be getting those rights and writing uh, this year as well. And uh, a feature, uh, The Great Recollection, among other projects. So I, I have a lot of projects that, are, uh, that I'm working on currently and taking out. So those are usually the projects that I talk to agents and managers about. Um, and, you know, I... I just try to pitch them on the fact that Killing Winston Jones will be coming out soon 
and these are the other projects that I'm really excited about and these are the people that are attached to try to pique their interest. Let's go back because when you are contacting these individuals, how do you even know where to contact them? Are you going to IMDb and you're looking for the top 10 and then you would your way down to, what's your process? My process is a little bit more of using the connections, um, utilizing the connections that I made at Innovative and at CAA when I was there. Um, I think it's always better to be introduced to an agent or a manager rather than just cold calling or just sending an email out of the blue or even if you have some sort of connection um, to the agent or the manager it, it helps out more so for me um, you know I uh, I spoke with people over at Innovative because originally uh, Joel was represented at Innovative Artists that's actually where I met him when I was working there and they were loosely representing me helping the project along for Killing Winston Jones um, but and then ICM ended up taking over doing that, so I spoke with some people over at ICM. It's really, I've, I, I, like I said, I utilize my connections, so I, I call in some favors from people who are represented at, at Innovative or at ICM or at Gersh or at you know, the cartel or um, you know, the firm, whatever it is. And I really try to go to a spectrum of, of agencies and, and management companies, anywhere from the, you know, the smaller boutiques to the, to the top ones and, and test the waters and see you know, if I can gain representation. I think the, the reason why um, I haven't been successful to this point is because it's basically twofold. One is that Agents and managers want to see results. So if you have a certain amount of success that we've had, you know, with with Killing Winston Jones, and, and we're moving to that territory with Innovative or with uh, Insanity, please, um, that's still not necessarily enough. You know, managers and agents have huge client lists. They're extremely busy. They need someone who is going. It's a business. They need someone who's going to be able to bring them projects that are going to make money. You know, um, so I think that. At the end of the day, when Killing Winston Jones is released, if we go through the film festival circuit and we, you know, open at Sundance or South by Southwest or Toronto or wherever we end up, if there's uh, any sort of reception, any sort of, you know, hopefully accolades or something, some recognition, I think that all those doors that are cracked will probably fly open because then you'll see the result of what was, you know, what was on paper that's now a film that has received a certain amount of success. So I think that will be helpful. Um, and a lot of those, uh, you know, those doors that were shut will open. And then I think the other thing why I haven't had the amount of success that I've wanted to or gain that representation is also because uh, film is in a very delicate place right now and it's difficult. I don't know that you know, a lot of agents and a lot of managers are looking to represent people that are in television. I'm not speaking for everyone, I'm just saying that television can be more lucrative because if you're successful at it, you see constant results. You're writing on a show, if you get picked up for a season, you have multiple episodes, that is much more lucrative than writing on a film. You know, I can't remember where I read this, but basically when you write a film, when you're finished writing that film, it's if you're lucky, the best case scenario is it's probably going to take you about 18 months to three years to see that on the film, on, on, on the screen, or to get it done, or to get into production. It's just a long process. 
Whereas television, if you can pitch an idea, get it ordered to pilot, get it done, you can see results very quickly and those results are exponential um, if you're successful. And so I think that, you know, me having come from the film world, writing features primarily in dramas and dark comedies, um, I didn't have television. And I think that was kind of like a demerit, you know, that was a check against me. So um, I had agent and manager, agents and managers telling me, come back to us when you are writing some television as well. And that's how I got into this TV project that I'm working on now. And I think it's, it's making me a bit more competitive. So hopefully that will help me eventually get, you know, the representation that I think is extremely important in this industry. Going back to planting these seeds, you're, you're through connections, you're reaching out to these people. Is it via email, via LinkedIn? Are you calling? How are you doing that? Um, what I like to try and do is I like to have someone else uh, approach managers and agents for me. So um, I will talk to potentially some of the talent that we had um, on Killing Winston Jones. Or I will talk to some of the connections that I have from when I was working at Innovative. The assistants that I worked alongside now that are, um, you know, agents or junior agents or development execs or um, working in some creative capacity in the industry and see if they can, you know, call in the favor for me. I mean, the thing is, I have developed quite a few relationships. So what I try to rely on is people that actually want to help me. So if, if they read a script of mine and it's the worst thing they've ever read, then it's not a fit for them to try and help me and take it to anyone. But if they read it and it, and it speaks to them for some reason, um, and they want to take it out or they want to talk to someone about it for me, I, you know, that's primarily how I approach the situation. I just think that having worked in the agencies, receiving an email, if you're an assistant or you're an agent, you're so busy with other projects, that email is most likely going to end up in the trash. And I'm not saying that it should be that way and it's too bad that it is that way, but that's just, that's just the way that it is. Um, it's the same with cold calling or a phone call. If you can have someone call on your behalf, if you know someone who's represented at that boutique agency or that top agency and they can make a call on your behalf and get the ball rolling, that's usually the best way to do it. So I think you'll, you'll find a lot more success um, when you can draw those connections. So it sounds like when you do have something in the works, that's when you start planting these seeds in terms of reaching out and knowing that it may be a no or just a maybe or we'll look into it. But then once they see the final results of that and know that you can be trusted to deliver, then that's when stuff starts happening so that people should be planning that. Well, let me give you an example. So when I was working at Innovative, um, I, uh, Joel Moore had just come off the success of Dodgeball. And so everyone there at the agency was courting him. They wanted to give him different projects to go out on. Um, and he was in the office all the time. And one day I ran into him and I said, uh, I have this script that I'm writing. And I think you would be absolutely perfect for one of the roles. Uh, that role ended up going to John Heater when we finally got it made. But, um, you know, that's probably a green thing to do. I was an assistant at the time. I don't know that I'd recommend that to people, but Joel being the brilliant and kind person that he is, um, you know, indulged me and said, great, when you have it, send it to me. I'll read it. I'll read anything that you send me. 
Um, and once I left the agencies and I was uh, taking the time to finish this particular project, Killing Winston Jones and the script, I sent it to him. And because of that small interaction that we had, you know, all those years earlier, and luckily um, he read it and he really enjoyed it. I mean, he called me a day after I sent it to him and, and wanted to uh, direct it and star in it and produce it, uh, which of course I'm not going to say no because anyone at that point that's bringing themselves on, especially someone um, with the credits uh, such as Joel has, you know, that's, that's a great opportunity for me. So um, based on that, um, that connection alone, we were able to make it, uh, to make the film. Now that's rare though. Um, I think that, like I said, uh, what I was getting at before, um, those moments are few and far between. I, I think if you're working in an agency capacity and talent comes in and you can talk with them, great, do it. But a lot of times if you were to see an agent or see an actor on the outside world and you started pitching them your idea or your project, it's just not, not gonna happen. It's the same with representation, you know? The more people you can have in your corner helping you and talking with people on your behalf, especially people who have established themselves at that point, um, that's going to be the most helpful. Justin, how are you going from the introverted writer to the extroverted producer where you have to leave the house, you have to be visible and pitch your idea? How do you make that shift in your mind? Uh, it's challenging. It's, it's a very difficult process. I, I think... Um, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's just something, unfortunately, that you have to do uh, in this industry. So, um, you know, that being said, I think that as a writer, you know, and I'm probably not the only one, I wake up with uh, different excuses not to write that day. I look for any excuse not to write that day. I would rather sometimes clean the house or, you know, go grocery shopping. I mean, my, the house is spotless, literally, because it looks great. I'm cleaning it half the time instead of writing because it gets me out of a day of writing uh, because writing can be so challenging. So I think when you have to put on your producer hat, that usually means you're in a good position. That means that you probably have worked diligently and, and, uh, you know, very, very hard over a year or more getting the script where it needs to be or at least developing the concept and the idea and you've been getting positive feedback and so it's time for you to go out and start pitching it to the people that need to see it. So I think um, after uh, the difficulty of, of writing, um, it's just the necessary step. So like I said, I mean, instead of going and cleaning the house or getting groceries or or finding some other excuse, the excuse becomes you have to get out and network and you have to talk to people and you have to try to sell this project and, and sell the story and sell the script. So it's, it's a necessary evil, but it, it has to be done. So I, I just, I think that there are definitely writers out there that are much more comfortable at home writing and not selling it, not trying to sell a script. I also think that there are writers that are much more comfortable trying to sell a script than actually writing it. Um, so it's just trying to find a balance. If finding, you know, a writer to work with as a, you know, a, a writing team where one person is better as a producer and the other is better as a writer and joining those together, then that's, you know, I think more power to you if, if you can find that dynamic in that relationship. Um, if you're going to write alone, you just have to find a way to um, balance the two. So I when I'm in uh, the zone and I'm writing as well as I possibly can, I will not leave 
my house for weeks and I will just continue to do that. Um, if I am struggling and I'm not writing that well, then I will leave. And if that's a time to start pitching projects, then that's when I'll pitch those projects. So I think it comes in waves. You know, you take the creativity when you can take the creativity. And when that dries up for a little bit, then you take the business side of it. Because at the end of the day, it is a business and, and selling your script and selling your project is of the utmost importance. So let's say you do have a meeting with someone to pitch your script. Um, what are you doing a week ahead of time? What are you doing the day before? What are you doing the day of? What are you wearing? How is your mindset? Um, by the time I'm pitching someone a script or a concept and they're at a high level and it's important, I've pitched it a thousand times. So I will be working on all the other projects that I have to be working on up until that moment. But maybe you know an hour or so before that interview I will get ready so if it's with a specific producer or a specific studio I'll make sure that I've done my research so I know the projects that they've done and why this whatever project I'm working on is potentially a good fit for them or I'll find commonalities between people that we've worked with or um, you know I will find commonalities between the genre that I write and successes in films that they've produced before or gotten made um, so you really have to approach it you know this is something that we talked about before rather than just sending out your script blindly to any production company if you can find out that this production company does a lot of films in your wheelhouse they have a project that's very similar and good and you think they would you know, respect the fact that you're writing something that they usually try to market, then approach them. You know, do your research, do your homework, know who you're meeting with, know who you're pitching. But in terms of preparation for the pitch, by the time you're pitching um, studios and producers and agents, you should have that pitch down pat because your mom's tired of hearing it, your girlfriend or boyfriend or wife's tired of hearing it, all your friends are tired of hearing it, so you should have it nailed, you know, by that point. Even nuts and bolts, how early are you showing up for the interview? What does a writer wear to pitch something? I mean, just even a suit, jeans? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, the, I don't, I will show up five minutes early maybe. There's no reason to show up earlier than that because let's just take an agency for example, they're incredibly busy. They have so many meetings that are packed in from the moment they walk in to the moment they go home at night. And so there's just no time to be early or no time to be late. Don't ever be late. Just be a few minutes early, prepare yourself, meet the people that you can meet. If you go and sit in, in the lobby for five minutes and you run into someone you know or you meet someone that works there, I mean, that could help you down the road and, and down the line. So um, I would say just give yourself a little bit of time, prepare yourself, whatever. I think everyone's probably different in their preparation. Um, but then, you know, once you're, I, sorry, what was the second Oh, what are you wearing? Oh, what am I, mean, I wearing? It sounds, it sounds like a Joan Rivers red carpet question. Yeah. Seriously, like what does someone go to wear? Well, believe it or not, I actually thought about what I was going to wear today. You know, I think it's important the way that you present yourself. I, I know some of the most talented writers uh, that will have stains on their t-shirts as they show up for a meeting and they just either don't know any better or they don't care. And if they have a really good project, then it's fine. You know, we'll, we'll look beyond the, the haggardness of, of their appearance. But, um, you know, for me, I think it finds something that's comfortable but professional. You know, I think that um, unless you are an incredibly talented writer that can get away with anything, 
just you know dress how you would want to dress and but in a, in a professional setting you know so similar almost to a job interview in a sense because it is a job interview but but maybe not the suit but maybe something I think the industry is a little bit different. We're a little bit more relaxed. You know, you see a lot of agents or producers in jeans. You know, they'll they'll throw on a, a, a suit jacket, and but they'll always have jeans, or they'll have Vans or Jack Purcells or something, something comfortable. You know, so I don't think that we necessarily take ourselves too seriously as a whole as an industry. So no, I don't think you need the suit. Um, I think you'd actually probably, they'd probably think you're an assistant or something, or like maybe an agent if you're at an agency, if you wore a suit. But I think that, um, yeah, just, just, I think it's important to keep it in the back of your mind what you're wearing. But really what you're there to do is to stay focused on what it is that you're pitching. So just don't wear anything that's going to be distracting. If you look, you know, if you have stains on your t-shirt, that's distracting. You know, if you are wearing a three-piece suit that's, you know, $5,000 Gucci suit, that's distracting. So find out who you're pitching to, know what the world is, know the world that you live in and that you work in and, and dress appropriately. And what are you bringing with you to the meeting? Um, well, I guess I'll just, I was at a meeting yesterday for this television uh, project that I'm working on and it was one of our final pitch meetings um, and we we're honing our pitch because we're going to be taking it out to these networks probably as early as next week. And, uh, you know, I brought my laptop, I brought a notepad and paper, and I was prepared to write things down or type things if I needed them. Um, otherwise, you know, I think a lot of times when you are taking these meetings, they probably know who you are, they know what your product is. And so, I don't think you necessarily need to bring a script or anything like that. They'll probably have it on hand, but you know, have something there so that you are showing your interest and showing that you cared because a lot of the times you can't retain everything that you walk away with from a meeting. So sometimes if you have to write it down, it shows your interest. It shows that you're invested and shows that you care. So, um, you know, I'll always have, I mean, I, I don't go anywhere without a notepad, you know, I, or, you know, my phone because, if I have an idea, I have a thought, I need to write it down. It should be the same in a meeting. If something comes to you that you had not thought of before or something that's going to be helpful, have something so that you can, you can take that down. So in these meetings, how much dialogue is back and forth? Is it mostly you speaking? Is it them just kind of listening and then once they're done, it's okay, great, thank you very much? We're talking about the meetings when I'm meeting with like an agent or a manager. Right, right. Um, you know, really what it is is it's, uh, they want to get to know you. They want to know what you have written, what you have to offer, what your goals are, what your projections are, and, and uh, what you're there to accomplish. So a lot of it really is, I'm sure it's a back and forth, it's question and answer, but a majority is um, them becoming familiarized with your product and who you are as a person and what you're trying to sell and the stories that you're trying to tell. So just like I'd mentioned before, um, I will personally talk about the success that I've had in the sense of selling um, a screenplay and a film that's uh, gone into production and post-production and scheduled to be in theaters with some you know, great actors that were attached um, because I'm trying to make myself as marketable as possible and show that I can offer something to the table um, and, and hopefully in return having them offer something for me as well. 
Um, so I, I would say that a majority of it, without trying to oversell yourself, should be talking about the things that you're excited about. You know, I, I treat meeting with agents and managers or even producers, uh, you know, the same as meeting with friends and telling them about the things that I am really, really excited about. This, the, you know, the projects that I'm working on, the people who are attached, you know, which changes on a daily basis, you know, the actors that you get depending on schedules. You have great actors attached to a project one day and then the next day they're gone, but that day that they're there, it's fun to say it. You know, it's fun to talk about it. And it's the same thing, you know, with Killing Winston Jones, we had uh, financing set up three times and it fell through for three times, three different times. So um, there wasn't one of those times where I didn't tell people, we have financing, we're finally gonna make it, it's gonna happen, um, because I was excited about it. And, uh, you know, and finally it did happen.